We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right. Every couple of weeks and uh, every every year for a couple of weeks in September, uh, we like to set aside some time uh, to really uh, emphasize and remember that we not only stand on, but we dance on the shoulders of men and women who came before us. We are united with all believers across time and around the globe, and we are united by the historic Orthodox Christian faith, and that is sacred. And so today uh, is the first day of this short two-week series called Sacred, where we're celebrating that. Many of you know uh, that I and a small team, uh, Dr. Steve Mary, Pastor Otis, we were just spent two weeks uh, in Ghana, and I was reminded of how we're united uh, with the one faith with believers around the world. We got to be a part of uh, planting three churches. We got to baptize 48 people, made connections uh, in a local hospital, uh, preached in villages, got to be involved in training 70-plus pastors and church leaders. It was a great event. I always, always love being a part of trips like that. It's for other people. It's not for us, and yet it's always meaningful and impactful uh, for me. Uh, it grows my understanding of God's Word. It grows my understanding of the Christian life, and, and I encountered something that really helped me understand the Christian life better, and I want to share it with you. You know, Jesus said that we're sheep, right? I want to show you a picture of a sheep riding down the road on top of a van. I think this is what the Christian life can feel like sometimes. Jesus, I'm going where you're taking me. I don't know where we're going. Feels like a wild ride, but I trust you. Let's go. You ever feel like this? All right. Today we're kicking off the, a, a, new, a new series, and in today's message, I feel like I need to let you know something uh, ahead of time. And uh, today is one of, and every time I get up and speak, every time, every message I share, I'm always honest with you, but not every sermon is created equally and how much vulnerability I risk. And today, I feel like I'm risking the greatest amount of vulnerability that I've ever shared with you since I've been your pastor. And it's not the kind of vulnerability where we share secrets. It's the kind of vulnerability where I speak from the heart and I share with you something that I, can, I feel compelled 
uh, by Jesus to say. And the reason that it feels risky is because I don't know how many people will want to stand with me when the sermon is done. But leadership stands up even when it stands alone. Do you believe that? And I believe that you, and I believe that this church is far too valuable and far too important to have a pastor who's too afraid to speak from his heart, especially when he believes that God has given him something to say. And I think by the end of this message that you will understand exactly what it is that I'm talking about. But between now and then, I'm gonna ask you to do two things. Number one, I wanna ask you to listen tonight as though something that is bigger than your own life is at stake. And number two, I wanna ask you to decide with whom you will stand. I don't know if you are aware of this, but in our country that there are hundreds of Christian denominations. Some people estimate that there are as many as 2,000. And there are, this is actually the wrong number, this is a typo on my part. There's 450,000, 450, 450,000 unique Christian denominations around the globe. Did you know that? Is that a problem? Is that troubling to anyone? That there's so many different versions of how it is to gather and worship? As you think about your answer, I want to read to you something that Jesus prayed one night. It was his last night of freedom. It was right before he was arrested. He was praying, and some of his friends were there. His closest friend was probably a guy named John, and John wrote down for us what Jesus prayed that night. He said this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for all of those who will believe in me through their message. Who's he praying for? Us. That all of them may be, what's this word? One. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us and the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So what do you think? Is it, is it a problem that there are so many, over 450, hundreds of thousands of different uh, unique Christian denominations around the globe? Is that a problem? And I guess my, my question is this. Is Jesus bad at prayer? What do you think? Now, I don't mind letting you know that this isn't very concerning to me. I don't see it as, I don't see it as troublesome because I want to point this out. Jesus prayed for our unity, not our uniformity. I don't think Jesus is bad at prayer. I don't think that Jesus' prayer went unanswered. And I just don't believe that just because there are disagreements between believers that that means that we don't have unity. Uniformity means that we have the exact same thoughts and the exact same opinions and the exact same kind of expression. But unity means, unity means that we're bound together and I believe we can be bound together even in moments when we have disagreement. Do you believe that? But this is, this is something that we have to acknowledge. We will never have unity if we confuse it with uniformity. Now, this is where we have to get real with ourselves. We live in a time in history, and we live in a culture that loves uniformity. And that explains why people increasingly only cluster together with others and only listen to other people who think exactly like them. 
We live in a nation and we live in a culture that is growing increasingly tribal. And we're not just drawing lines. We are building walls and burning bridges to reinforce the separation that exists between us and people with whom we disagree. And it is not just a reality in our national culture. It has become normal in the American church culture as well. I believe we still need Jesus' prayer for our unity. And I want to put something up on the slide. I'm going to put something up, and i got to tell you before I put it up, I believe it now more than I've ever believed it in my life. Division will cause a church to implode. Unity will cause a church to explode. Division will cause it to implode, but unity will cause it to explode in a positive way. I believe, I don't know if you believe this, but I believe that we're sitting on a powder keg. I believe that we, are, we have the, the, the possibility of explosive impact and influence. This church is perfectly positioned to reach this city. This church is perfectly positioned to reach those who already live here and the millions who travel here every year. Our church, Autumn Ridge Church, is perfectly positioned to make a global impact, to have a significant contribution to the advancement of the gospel movement around the world. So what is going to light this powder keg of impact and influence? Before I answer what it is, I can tell you what it's not going to be. What it's not going to be, it's, it's not going to be our Bible knowledge, though that's a really important thing. It's not going to be our music and our worship style, though those things are important. It's not going to be this facility and our resources, though those are important things and incredibly nice things to have. Do you remember what Jesus prayed? He's praying to the Father, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know. The thing that will light this powder keg of impact and influence is our unity. Now we can summarize Jesus' prayer like this. Jesus hung his credibility on our unity. And what happens when Jesus is seen as credible? Do you know? It's the exact same thing that happens when anybody is seen as having credibility, trusted and believed. And Jesus hung his credibility on our unity. Is there anything more urgent for us tonight than unity? Jesus had a little brother whose name was Jude. It seems pretty likely that he didn't take Jesus very seriously until after the resurrection. But Jude grew to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus, and he also became a leader among the churches. And he shared Jesus' concern for unity. And he recognized that there was a type of false teaching that was creeping in, that was bringing division and dismantling their unity. And so he wrote a letter and his letter is the second to the last book in the New Testament. It's incredibly short. It's just one chapter. And this is what Jude wrote. He said, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled. I felt compelled uh, to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith 
that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The singular faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. I want to go back to the hundreds of unique Christian denominations that are in our country, and some estimate that it's as many as 2,000. There are 450,000 unique Christian denominations globally. How can there be one singular faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people with so many different versions of Christianity? And sometimes this is a question that people ask me, Rick, even if I wanted to believe in Jesus, how would I know which version of Christianity to follow? And sometimes I'm pressed with this question by people that I deeply and dearly love. How would you answer that question? Let me ask you this. How do you know that you are sitting in the right kind of church tonight? The video that played right before, that I, before I got up here to share the message, the narrators were reading something called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was originally published in 325 AD, and it was written to answer this question, what is it that we believe about Jesus? 325 AD was the first time in history that it was safe for pastors and church leaders to gather together publicly in one place without fear of being arrested or without fear of being killed. A little while later in 381, they added some language because they also wanted to answer the question, what is it that we believe about the Holy Spirit? And so they wrote a little extra to add clarity to that. And the Nicene Creed summarizes the essentials of the faith that united believers then. And believe it or not, the Nicene Creed continues to summarize the essentials of the faith that unite all believers today. And so I want us to slow down a little bit and take time to read it together again. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnated by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic, which means universal, united, set apart by God, universal, an apostolic church. Apostolic means that we are under the authority of what was written by the apostles. I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. What we just read is considered orthodox or orthodoxy. And orthodox is a term that simply means straight teaching. This 
is the DNA of our faith. This is the bones of our faith. It contains things like the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in being and three in persons. Jesus is fully God and took on what it means to be fully man, that his crucifixion and resurrection are real, knowable, historic events. And we are apostolic in the sense that we are underneath, happily underneath the writing of the apostles. That means we are under the authority of Scripture. That is, un- that is orthodox faith that unites all believers everywhere and for all time. And I want you to think about orthodoxy like this tonight. I want you to think about orthodoxy kind of like an umbrella. Everything that is underneath it, every person, every church that would say, yes, I affirm that, is safely under the umbrella of the true, straight-teaching, orthodox faith. But is there room for disagreement? The answer is yes. Because we do disagree, don't we? Anybody ever disagree with somebody else? All right. There is room for disagreement, and under this line represents where there is room and there are real disagreements. We're not disagreeing about this, but there's disagreement down here. And underneath this line is where we have different denominations, churches and believers who disagree with each other about things that are meaningful, things that are important. They just don't rise to this level. And let's let these circles represent different denominations. I didn't have room to put 450,000 up here. So you got Presbyterians and Baptists, where they disagree on stuff. You got Methodists and Lutherans, and they disagree on stuff. And you got non-denominational churches, and they have their unique approaches, and they disagree with others on stuff. But what do all of these different denominations share in common? They are united under orthodoxy. They don't agree on everything, but they agree on the most important things. And even though there are all kinds of different denominations, we share an astonishing amount of unity on the essentials of the faith. And so Jesus' prayer, (laughs) Jesus is good at prayer. And his prayer is honored because we are united in this. Is there room for more disagreement? Well, yeah, under this line right here represents that that there's room for even more disagreement on, on smaller issues. And we're not saying that these smaller issues down here, that they aren't important. They're just lesser in significance. Can I give you a couple of examples? What's our worship style? Well, we could disagree on that down here and still be orthodox. How often should we observe communion? Well, we can disagree on that. (laughs) We're still orthodox. Here's another one, a little provocative. Do you believe that it was the biblical writer's intent to communicate six-day literal creation or another view? That disagreement is not at this level. It's down here. What are some other things that believers disagree about? Let's talk about a couple of big ones. One is baptism. At our recent all-in baptism event that we got to celebrate last month, we had three churches come together uh, to celebrate baptism, and there are already more churches who want to be a part of it next year. I think that's an exciting thing. But is every church in town going to join us for that? No way. I'm friends with a pastor here in town, and his church emphasizes infant baptism, and so they're never going to participate with us in something like this. That doesn't mean that we don't have unity. It just means that we disagree on something that's meaningful to us. It doesn't mean that we're going to stop being friends. 
It doesn't mean that we aren't going to go uh, to lunch together. And it doesn't mean that from time to time that I won't sit underneath his preaching when I have an off weekend here at Autumn Ridge. You can be united and still disagree. You can choose not to participate on some things together and still have unity. That's another area where people disagree. How about why did biblical writers intend to communicate about women and leadership in the church? Like, are women able to be pastors and, and elders and leaders and preachers? This is, a, this is a question in which a lot of people, understandably so, have emotions attached to that, and that's allowed. That's okay. Disagreement doesn't mean that we don't have unity. There are good-hearted, very smart people in our own church who disagree with that. But let me tell you something where it doesn't exist. That disagreement is not at this level. And we can, we can debate whether it's at this level or this level, but let me tell you where it's not. It is not right here. And any time that we experience a disagreement on something that is not at this level, but somewhere down here, any time we disagree and we have disunity and we have division and we contribute to it by having divisive type attitudes and behaviors, we are rebelling against the prayer of Jesus. Is sin even a strong enough word to describe that. We all share a common responsibility. I have it, and you have it. And that responsibility is to choose and to work for unity. I want to turn our attention to something else that Jude wrote. He said this, that, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, and the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who what? Divide you. Who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Let's be people who are not easy targets. Let's be people who are hard targets for deception and hard targets for division. If we're going to take this seriously, if we're going to take Jude seriously, we have to acknowledge this, that there are people and there are forces actively working to divide us. There are people and there are forces actively working to divide us, and they do it in a couple of different ways. One way is really straightforward. It's an obvious contradiction of the Orthodox faith. Let me give you a couple of examples. Denying the Trinity or denying the divinity of Jesus. Those would be two examples of just straight up contradicting the faith. But the other way is a little bit more subtle and it's dangerous because it can sneak in and take hold before we even realize that it's there. And instead of a glaring, obvious contradiction, it's a teaching that's like a cancer that eats away at Orthodox faith from the inside out. Can I give you two examples? The prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism. The prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism. And believe it or not, they are problems for churches all over the world. Churches everywhere have to be on guard. We ourselves, our own congregation, have to be on guard against those things. This is an important thing to remember. Unity is an intentional direction. 
not an accidental destination. It's an intentional, on purpose, I'm choosing to go their direction, not an accidental destination. Unity is hard. Division is easy because it takes no work and it takes no effort at all. And because of that, we all share a common vulnerability to embracing a counterfeit version of unity and celebrating a counterfeit version of unity. Here's, I'm gonna share with you a couple of ways that we can unintentionally, accidentally embrace what I'm fake unity. Fake unity is this, talk around but never about areas of disagreement. Talk around but never about areas of disagreement. Is it okay if I start to ease into vulnerability? Does Minnesota nice make us more likely or less likely to do this? All right, you laugh, so I think it's a, yeah, I'm not, not alone here. Okay, still got friends in the room. How about this? Only cluster with the people who think exactly like us. And a church this size, and a church this diverse, easy to do. Easy to do without even realizing it. But if we did that, would we be honoring or dishonoring Jesus' prayer for us? What I want to do for the rest of our few minutes together, I want to pay attention to and I want to emphasize, how do we move towards unity? How do we move ourselves in the right direction and honor Jesus' prayer for us? And I want to give us three things, three attitudes, three behaviors that we can adopt. And if we do it, we will cultivate deep, meaningful, sustaining, sustainable unity. Deep, meaningful, long-lasting unity. These three things are this. Number one, elevate curiosity over criticism. Learn the art of asking questions and express disagreement with grace. Let me ask you real quick, when you experience someone who, who you disagree with and, and, and you just see it totally different, are you more likely to be curious or are you more likely to be critical? Later, you can ask people who know you best and they'll hopefully share with you the honest answer. But if we wanted to be people who elevated curiosity and say, let's be curious, what should we do? These are three attitudes or behaviors that we can adopt. Number one, I learned this from Stephen Covey. Seek to understand before being understood. So when I encounter somebody who disagrees with me and, and I don't agree with what they say, instead of me stating my opinion and stating how I see it and saying that they're wrong, number one thing I'm going to do is seek to understand them. Where are they coming from? Why is it that they see it the way that they see it? And one way that I can do that is I can ask this question, what can I learn? They could be right and I could be wrong. But I want to understand them. And I want to I learn more about them and why is it that they see things the way that they do. And I may never change my mind. I may never come over to their side of the fence. But I want to better understand and better know them and why they see things the way they do. The next thing is, what do I need to unlearn? All learning requires unlearning bad thinking and false beliefs. Every time we learn, we have to unlearn bad thinking and false beliefs. The second big thing is this, the art of asking questions. If we want to honor Jesus's prayer request for our unity, this is a non-negotiable. And notice I didn't, we're describing it as the art of asking questions. And the reason we say it that way is not all questions are created equally. Did you know that? 
Some questions are just statements with a question mark at the end. Some statements are little, some questions are a little more than an interrogation. Have you ever experienced this? Sometimes people just keep asking questions as a way to wear you down and not try to understand instead of actually trying to understand. You guys know what I'm talking about? Here are some, I'm gonna give you some questions that we can ask when we do this. Whenever we experience disagreement, we cultivate understanding and unity. Part of the art of asking questions is this. You have a different understanding than I do. How did you come to that perspective? If you're a teenager, ask your parents that. It will blow their mind. You might get a raise in your allowance. You have a viewpoint that's new to me. What influenced your thinking about this? When you became convinced of blank, how did you answer questions about blank? When you became convinced of this thing, how did you answer questions about the view that disagrees with that? And here's the deal. When we try to understand each other and we ask questions, we might find that the disagreement persists and we're not able to agree, and that's okay. So what do we do then? Disagree with grace. Let me give you a few examples of how we can do that. I know you love Jesus and care about God's word. You and I just see this differently. I know you've thought about this carefully. I know you've prayed about this carefully. I'm just not convinced that's the right understanding. Here's the next one. This is a little bit harder. I love you. I'm just not able to participate with you in blank. Curiosity over criticism. Learn the art of asking questions. Express disagreement with grace. What do you think? Do you think that if you did that, that you would be better off? Do you think if we did that as a church, do you think that we would be better off? Do you think if we adopted these things as normal, that it would help us to cultivate greater unity even when we experience serious disagreement. This is the point where I want to step into some vulnerability. The most vulnerable that I feel like I've ever been with you. And if that makes you feel nervous, that's okay. I feel nervous too. Does this describe us? Does this describe our church in times where we don't understand and we experience disagreement? It has been my experience that this does not yet describe us. And I don't say that from a place of anger. Just the opposite. I say it with love and with empathy and hope. This church has gone through a monumental amount of change in a very short time. A lead pastor transition. Beloved pastors have retired. New pastors have been hired. We went through the dark days of COVID together. COVID impacted our church in ways that I think most people don't even understand. And more ways that I could count and more ways that I can list off for you right now. We've gone through some hard political seasons. We've gone through some very difficult social tension. 
And we are in a turbulent and confusing economy. It's hard for people to be at their best. But Jesus didn't pray for us to be united except for when times are really, really hard. When things are hard, it's when we experience our need for unity most acutely. This world, this city, needs us to be united. We know that we're struggling with unity when? We know we're struggling with unity when we're comfortable with gossip. We know we're struggling with unity when we choose not to participate because we just don't like how things are different. We know we struggle with unity when we don't give because we don't like how things are different. We know we're struggling with unity in those times where we're really comfortable stating disagreement and making statements, but we don't ask questions. We know we struggle with unity when we only cluster together with the people who share our opinions and think exactly like us. We know we struggle with unity when we don't talk to people who hurt us or offended us or who we're struggling to understand. Why is this so important? Because Jesus hung his credibility on our unity. What do we want to be true about our church? What do we want to do? What should we do? In moments where we realize that disunity or division may have crept in, or even that we have intentionally or unintentionally contributed to it with our behaviors and our attitudes, the first thing we do is we admit it and we repent. And the second thing we do is we commit to the work of unity.